0: Welcome to the Two Journeys Bible Study Podcast. This podcast is just one of the many resources available to you for free from Two Journeys Ministry. If you're interested in learning more, just head over to twojourneys.org. Now on to today's episode. This is episode 30 in our Acts Bible Study Podcast. This episode is entitled The Jerusalem Council on Circumcision, Part 2, where we'll discuss Acts chapter 15 verses 12 through 35. I'm West Treadway and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, what are we going to see in these verses we're looking at today?
1: Well, Acts 15 is as we said last time, one of the most significant theologically significant chapters in the entire Uh, New Testament, and I think it is the most theologically significant chapter in the book of Acts, uh, which is mostly a historical record of the spread of the gospel. There's definitely some theology in the messages that Peter and Paul preached, but this is very significant because they're having to get at what is the gospel. The question is, is the gospel, faith in Christ alone and in the finished work of Christ alone, is that enough? Or do you have to add the works of the law? Do you have to add the uh, uh, circumcision as a gateway into a whole lifestyle of obeying the old covenant? And praise God, the Holy Spirit led them to get it right and to teach justification by faith alone apart from works of the law. But we also see some pastoral wisdom as they write this letter and they try to manage the Jew-Gentile relationships in a very wise way. So there's a lot of depth to this chapter we're going to walk through today.
0: let me go ahead and read chapter 15, verses 12 through 35. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written— After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter, The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, To the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, upsetting your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ." We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Andy, before we jump in in verse 12, maybe remind us of what's happened up to this point because we pick up in the middle of this council that we've been discussing.
1: Sure. So um, the key issue, as I said in the intro, um, is what is the gospel? Uh, That's really what we're getting at. And so we have a very clear attack, I think, a satanic attack on the gospel By a group of people that's commonly known as Judaizers, they were uh, Pharisees who had claimed to come to faith in Christ, who claimed to be Christians. Maybe they really were, Um, but – or maybe they were false teachers, we don't know. But we know that their gospel was a false gospel because an entire book of the New Testament, Galatians was written to refute this false gospel, which Paul says in Galatians one, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one you heard from us, let him be eternally condemned. And so this is a different gospel and what is it? It's a combination of faith in Christ and works of the law, specifically Jewish works. You had to become a law-abiding Jew effectively as a Gentile in order to be saved. And so verse one and verse five are the key. Verse one, it says, some men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. You cannot have your sins forgiven. Faith in Jesus isn't enough. You have to be circumcised too, and then, more expansively, in verse five, it says that these Pharisees, who were supposedly Christians, said the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. So and so circumcision isn't enough; you got to do the whole thing. So that includes dietary regulation, Sabbath observance is the whole thing, which Peter calls a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear. So that's what we're addressing. All these leaders come together in Jerusalem to answer that question. Is faith in Christ enough for the forgiveness of sins or not? Do you have to add to it a whole lifetime of obedience to the law? And so the Jerusalem council is gathered uh, to answer that.
0: So in verse 12, we pick up with Barnabas, Paul, and James essentially making their case. Mm-hmm. How is the testimony of Barnabas and Paul useful in the decision, mm-hmm. and how do the signs and wonders among the Gentiles add to this discussion?
1: Well, clearly Barnabas and Paul are the, the the point of the spear of the advance of the gospel into the Gentile world. I mean, Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles, and and Barnabas, we could say, is almost his armor-bearer. Um, he's there to help Paul complete that ministry or mission to the Gentiles. So it really makes sense for them to lead out in testimony fashion and say, let me tell you what's happened on our missionary journey, the first, what we would call the, Paul's first missionary journey, uh, written for us in Acts 13 and 14, which we've just seen. And so they're listening carefully to the testimonies. They must have been thrilling for them and exciting. And specifically the miracles that God did, the healings. And I would have to say the miracle of the outpouring of the spirit on Gentile converts. Like Paul says in Galatians three, oh foolish Galatians who has bewitched you as before your very eyes that Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. That was enough, that was the gospel. And I wanna ask this, did you receive the spirit by believing what you heard or by works of the law? Mm. And so Cornelius is a clear example. When Peter went to the house of Cornelius and preached the gospel, they just heard and believed. They weren't circumcised. The Holy Spirit was poured out on them. That's a miracle. They started speaking in tongues. The clear display of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit was a miracle. And so in Acts 11, that was enough. When they heard, when when some people that were questioning Peter and questioning the men with him heard about it, and then but then they heard that God had poured out the Spirit on uncircumcised men, they were satisfied. Hmm. So we're hoping for the same kind of unity here. This is what happened. Peter gives the testimony that the Lord poured out the Spirit. Paul's giving the testimony as well. It's pretty obvious what God thinks about this. We need to get with the Lord. We need to agree with the Holy Spirit on this. So they listen to that testimony from Barnabas and Paul.
0: What do verses thirteen through twenty-one teach us about James's role mm-hmm. in the early church?
1: It's very significant. Now, this is a different James than the brother of John, who had already been executed. Uh, he had been beheaded by uh, wicked King Herod, um, and that was when you know Peter also uh, escaped from prison, Acts twelve. Uh, so this is a different James. This is James, it seems, the brother of Jesus, um, which is fascinating. Uh, he's mentioned specifically in 1 Corinthians 15 as someone that Jesus singled out to appear to after his resurrection from the dead. Hmm. Uh, gave him physical evidence of his bodily resurrection from the dead. And sadly, earlier in John 7, it said even his own brothers did not believe in him. In Mark's gospel, it said that his brothers and mother went to take charge of him, for they said he's out of his mind. And so here was James in, in a in a pattern of unbelief. And I think it was because of what Paul wrote, though we once saw Jesus in a fleshly sort of way, we look on him that way no longer. Mm -hmm. So if you're too close to Jesus physically, to some degree, to his ordinariness, his ordinary humanity, you could despise him. And Jesus actually said that very plainly in Mark six, you know, a, a prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his own family, in his own household. So he's singling out James, among others. I don't know where Mary was at at this. Maybe, hopefully, she maintained a strong faith throughout, but was along for the ride with her sons. And so here's James, who at that point, openly, it says in John 7, didn't believe in him, Mm -hmm. but now he does. And God worked a transforming work in him. He's with Mary and um, the rest of the family, In Acts 1, waiting for the outpouring of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And now, look at him. He's become basically the central pillar. And Paul mentions him in Galatians 2 as a pillar in the church in Jerusalem. He is the leader. He sums the whole thing up. Hmm. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should do X, And they do X. Hmm. And so it's a a very – Amazing story of God's transforming grace and him raising a man up who then becomes the pillar and the leader, even, it seems, above Peter. Uh, He has a role here that even Peter doesn't have, which, again, argues against Peter as the pope, Peter as the kind of leader, human leader Mm -hmm. of the church, the Mm -hmm. vicar of the church of Christ on earth. It seemed like James had more authority than Peter here. So at any rate, so much uh, for James. He leads out in this.
0: In verse 14, we see this uh, phrase, God taking from the Gentiles a people for his name. Mm-hmm. What's the significance
1: of this phrase and how does this impact the Jews? Oh, this is vital. Um, God isn't doing two works. He's not doing a Jewish work and a Gentile work. Again, Romans 11, there is one tree, a cultivated olive tree with a developed root system and branches. And the branches are deriving life-giving sap from that tree nourishing root system Hmm. of the work of God among his people, among the Jews. Salvation is from the Jews. Not just that the Messiah was Jewish, but you're kind of grafted into a work that God has been doing, including the law of Moses, including the old covenant. And that's where it gets difficult and challenging. we got to work that out. And Acts 15 is a big part of that. But the fact is God has one people for his name that he's calling out from among Jews and Gentiles. It's not two different works. Mm. And so Ephesians two makes it very plain that there's one new man made out of the two, Jew and Gentile, one new man. Both of them were under condemnation and wrath as Romans two makes it plain. Those who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, that's Gentiles. Those who sin under the law will be judged by the law, that's Jews. Both of them needed a savior, Jesus is the savior. God works saving work in them. They're born again. They become, Ephesians 2, that one new man. And they are united. And the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility between them, the ceremonial laws and all that, dietary regulations, circumcision are all fulfilled. Mm -hmm. Now, you will ask then why the requirement to not eat meat, sacrificed to idols and blood and all that. We'll get to that. I hope All right. <laughs> we'll talk about that. But the fact is that barrier, that dividing wall of hostility in the laws and regulations of the law of Moses had been fulfilled and were obsolete. And so he is, he's saying God has chosen a people for himself out of the Gentiles and they're every bit as much his sons and daughters. Uh, Galatians 3 says, you are children of Abraham through faith in Christ. You have been adopted into the family of God. And then Galatians 4, he put his spirit in you, crying out, Abba, Father. That is one new work being done and it includes the Gentiles. That's vital to the whole argument being made here. What does circumcision have to do with that? Paul says in Galatians, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is a new creation. If you have been worked on by the Spirit of God, you're a new creation, you don't need circumcision. Mm. So that's essential to the argument.
0: Now, the prophecy that James quotes here is from Amos 9 11 and 12. How does that support James's point
1: and how does he apply it to the issue at hand? It's not an easy question, it's complex. Um, but they could have, I think James could have chosen any one of a number of Old Testament prophecies that mention the Gentiles or the nations. Paul quotes a bunch of them in Romans 15. And so any, any passage that shows God's saving intention among the nations of the earth, among the Gentiles. And Jesus himself in Luke 24 showed them what was written. It was written that the Christ would suffer and die and rise again. And it is written that repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. That was written. Where was it written? Well, Amos 9 would be one of those places, but so would be some other things from Isaiah and other places. Distant coastlands and islands. We'll hear of his fame and his glory. Mm. Uh, there's a lot of great passages in Isaiah on this, but he chose Amos. Now, what is he saying in Amos? What is what is the quote? How does it function? Well, he's saying after this or in the end times, in the, in the last days, uh, I will return, God will return to his work. He'll return to this... This ongoing work that he's doing on earth, and he calls it David's fallen tent. I will rebuild David's fallen tent, it's ruins. I will rebuild and I will restore it. What's that? Well, that's got to be post exile, it's got to be the rebuilding of the literal city of Jerusalem Nehemiah, the broken down wall, it's ruins, it's destroyed. It's leveled. But also Isaiah gives us a picture of a, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. So it's like a tree cut down, but then a shoot comes up from it. Hmm. And so there's this sense of, is God done with the Jews after Babylon? Is he done with the, with the, the Jewish nation? No, he actually isn't. Hmm. There's a pile of rubble there called Jerusalem when Nehemiah got a letter from his brother who was living there, or at least had gone to see. It. And he said, look, I'm telling you, there's no wall there. The city are, is, is ruined. It's destroyed. The Babylonians destroyed it. And there are some people squatting there, but it's, there's nothing going on. Lamentations 1, how desolate lies the city once so full of people. The grief uh, that Jeremiah saw as he actually literally watched the Babylonians destroy it, including the temple. Hmm. All right, so that's the ruins of David's fallen tent. Why David's fallen tent? Because the centerpiece of what God was doing was bringing about a savior, a Jewish savior. So as David's lineage cut off, we had some really bad Davidic kings. They were corrupt people. And then if you look at the genealogy of Jesus, there's some obscure people. Who are these people? We don't know anything about them. We're talking about Joseph's ancestors, Joseph's great-great-grandfather. Never heard of the guy. It's a bunch of, of obscure sons of David. And then the angel comes to Joseph and says, Joseph, son of David, Hmm. I've got some news for you. So David had to be a son of David. I'm sorry, Joseph had to be a son of David for Jesus to be a son of David. It was a lineage, but it didn't mean anything. He was a carpenter. He was a manual laborer. It's like, (laughs) hey, I want you to know I'm a son of David. Everybody here is a son of David. It's no big deal. So its ruins have been leveled. Is there anything happening? There is. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. I'm going to rebuild the ruins. Mm. And the rebuilding was in Christ. Mm. And so I'm going to rebuild David's fallen tennis. Ruins are will building and I will restore it. Why will you do that, Lord? So that the remnant of men may seek the Lord. That would include Jews, the Jewish remnant. And oh, that's a key word. And what? All the Gentiles who bear my name. What does that mean? They're elect Gentiles. That's why I'm doing this. I'm going to rebuild this whole thing, and I'm going to reach out to those Gentiles, says the Lord who does these things that have been known for ages. This is, was God's plan all along. This wasn't an accident. This was always God's plan. So it's a pretty good quote from Amos. It is. Now, we've
0: talked about this pushback that they're offering against requiring the Gentiles to totally obey the law of Moses, why does James feel that they should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God? And how would requiring circumcision and that total obedience to the laws of Moses make it difficult for the Gentiles?
1: Well, let's keep it simple. God isn't requiring it. We know the answer now. Was God actually requiring Gentile converts to be circumcised? Answer, no, decidedly not. So that's troubling. He's putting a a yoke on them that, as Peter said, neither we nor our fathers were able to bear. But more than that, God wasn't putting it on them. God didn't want it put on them. And so he said very clearly in Deuteronomy, do not add to my commands or take away from them. Hmm. You don't get to add things I'm not doing. You need to follow my lead. And it's very, very clear here. And and Paul will make the theological argument. Under one condition was Abraham Abraham. Uh, in what condition was Abraham when he uh, was justified? When God said it said uh, Abraham believed the Lord, and it was credited to him as righteousness. He was uncircumcised. He was a Gentile. He was like some have called him a Gentile moon worshiper. We have no evidence that Abraham himself worshipped the moon, but his ancestors did. Hmm. Joshua makes that plain in Joshua twenty four. That's his ancestors were Gentiles, they were pagans, and Abraham was still an uncircumcised Gentile. When God called him. And so that's the argument Paul's going to make in Romans very plainly. And so fundamentally saying it, it would be to trouble or burden Gentile converts, specifically the men, uh, to have them be circumcised. I mean, who wants to go through that at age 32? I mean, some guy comes to town, preaches the gospel. Sounds good. I'm interested. I'm intrigued. Now, wait a minute. I got to get circumcised? Hmm. That's an additional requirement. I'm not sure I want it. And so he said, "Why we are not going to burden the Gentiles with circumcision. But then even if they're in their pain and recovering from the surgical procedure, it's like, now i got to really lay it on you. Now it really starts.
0: Hmm.
1: Day after day after day, you have to observe all of these regulations. What regulations? Well, we have five books of Moses here. Let's walk through it. It's like, my goodness, really? And so it's it's a crushing burden, um, and he said it, we should not do that to these Gentile converts who are turning to the Lord. As you mentioned earlier, we need to talk about verse
0: 20. How should we reconcile the restrictions that James proposes here in verse 20 right. with Paul's teaching on the freedom of a Christian in eating meat sacrificed to idols, which he advocates elsewhere?
1: Well, how long have you got? Okay, <laughs> we've got 1 Corinthians 8 through 10. So, Wes, you know I preached through those three chapters. Mm-hmm. And that's the whole meat sacrifice to idol sing. And that's not all. You got Romans 14 that addresses, you know, controversial issues and unity within the body and and all that. There's lots of of answers to this. It's mm-hmm. not a simple question, right? Over the top of all of it, we need to understand for all time, Jesus has declared all foods clean. It's done. Mark seven. And it's out of that clear teaching that Paul always teaches. But then you've got these stronger brothers in Corinth who got that, and they're eating anything. But then you've got some recent converts that are coming out of some really wicked, corrupt paganism, Hmm. including sexual immorality, orgies, a whole lifestyle. And eating meat was a big part of that. And you're being called out of that. You're like, I'm done with all of that. So you're never going to eat meat again? If it's part of that life, I want nothing to do with it. And then you come to worship that next week and you got all these guys are just eating meat and they're doing all this stuff and they're like, oh, wait a minute, I don't get this. So are they also doing the orgies too? Hmm. And so you look at the list here and there's three things that I think we generally would say we're free from and one that we're not. So what are the three that we're free from? Well, they all have to do with eating. You're gonna um, abstain from food, sacrifice to idols, from blood and from the meat of strangled animals. Check, check, and check. All three of them are fine. As long as you don't know anything about them, they're fine. Now, the blood is the blood, and it's like, you know, it's very clear in Leviticus. You're not to eat the blood because the life of the creature is in the blood and all that. But Jesus taught and Paul made it clear that things you put in your mouth don't make you unclean. Hmm. So, yeah, you can eat blood if you really want to. And there's some cultures, like I guess there's blood blood sausages and mm-hmm. stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I think it's nasty. <laughs> but I think as we're going through that, you're under no spiritual disadvantage if you do it. There's no spiritual virus that comes with it. Mm. So that's the point. That's the top principle. But second of all, you've got a horizontal love principle toward your brother. And that principle we got out of the preaching through 1 Corinthians 8 through 10 is love limits liberty. Yeah, you got freedom, but you got to you got to love your brother and if he's weak and he's harmed by it and he's still learning Christianity and he's still wrapped up in things that are timelessly prohibited such mm-hmm. as sexual immorality with other things that are you're now free to do, but I can't unravel it. So like, don't try to unravel it yet. Mm-hmm. Just abstain period and then we'll get to it we get to it. So let the brother grow. The strong should bear with the weak. These are things taught in Romans 14. So this is a complex issue here. But I think this is for the sake of Jew-Gentile unity. That's why James is writing. This is not a timeless prohibition, but for the, uh, the temporary issue. And the reason he gives is that Moses has been preached in all these cities. Mm -hmm. It's not a timeless principle. Instead, it is a a principle of Jew-Gentile unity until we finally get up into the maturity of Jesus' statement that all foods are clean. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, I remember that being a powerful walk through those chapters in 1 Corinthians as we focused on that idea that love limits liberty. And the way that we think about one another matters in the life of the church, in our life together as followers of Christ. Mm Andy, is there any more that we need to say about verse 21 and how it relates to James's reasoning here?
1: Well, I, I mentioned it a second ago. I mean the, these things are well known. And the, the, Jews, um, the, the, the Jews' holiness codes de- definitely identify them as an apart people. They were people set apart. Hmm. And so the reason for that was fulfilled when Jesus came so that salvation is from the Jews means something. The Jews meant something. So Moses was preached in all these cities and the now fulfilled ceremonial laws are well known, but Jesus fulfilled them. It's just going to take a while for that lesson to set in. So I see here a pastoral wisdom in James and in the leaders here, not a timeless prohibition that contradicts Jesus, but a pastoral wisdom here saying, look, these, these ceremonial laws are well known. It's going to take a while for Jews and Gentiles alike to come into the full maturity on this topic.
0: So, in verse 22, then, we turn from the reasoning and the logic and the argumentation that's been laid out uh, from the beginning of the chapter to the council's letter to the Gentile converts. Mm-hmm. Who decided to send the letter to the Gentiles, and why did they also decide to send messengers with Paul and
1: Barnabas? Well, um, the heading of the, um, the letter says, the apostles and elders, your brothers. So, these are leaders. Um, these are, are men that are set apart. And the pattern now for local churches is elders. Uh, we have elders that are are also called pastors etc and these are men that are filtered uh, by first timothy 3 and titus 1 that have um, a good solid deep knowledge of the bible and are godly they're mature they're able to make decisions for the church and hand, hand them down and so that's what we have here the jerusalem council is made up of these leaders now still at that point you had apostles, which we no longer have, which were eyewitnesses of the life of Jesus that were given a special authority that set the entire course of the church doctrinally. They were the foundation, Ephesians 2, on which the whole church was laid, the teaching of the apostles and the prophets. So that's scripture. Before there was New Testament scripture, these were men that were given this role. So uh, the apostles, Peter and Paul and John and all that, and then you've got leaders like James, who was not an apostle, but a key key leader, an elder among the people. They're the ones that that made the ruling and that decide to write the letter and then also send human messengers to validate what the letter said. What is the main idea of this letter that they're going to send? All right, the main idea is they want to get across the freedom um, that uh, the Gentile converts have from the law of Moses. The, it's, it's interesting, the division of labor here. The Holy Spirit says it seemed good to us and to the Holy Spirit, so we'll get to that in a moment. and It's a very important statement. But the Holy Spirit doesn't do all that needs to be done here. This is a very brief letter, very brief. It's like, we'll get to all that. It's like the Holy Spirit saying, we'll get to all that. Read Galatians, all right? We'll get to all that. Read Romans. We, we will develop more deeply the theology behind this ruling. In the meantime, here's the ruling. Hmm. So you need, a, you need a decision. There's a lot of Gentiles coming to faith in Christ. They need to know, do we have to be circumcised or not? Answered decisively, no. Mm-hmm. You do not have to be circumcised in order to be saved. No, you do not have to keep the whole law of Moses in order to be saved. That is just not true. So that's the centerpiece of this letter. But there are lots of details and questions that will be addressed later. The Holy Spirit through Paul in Galatians and Romans will answer it more fully later.
0: What does verse 24 teach us about the effect
1: of false teaching? It says, we have heard that someone out without from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. Uh, false teaching is very disturbing. It's, it's d- destructive and it divides. Um, legalism produces anger and um, – You know, Paul says, if you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out or you'll be destroyed by one another, Galatians. So that's what happens with legalism. You think before Christ, the Pharisees were all best buds with one another? No, they hated each other. And they were in competition with each other, et cetera. And so these went out without our authorization. We didn't tell them to go. The core, the glowing center of leadership for the new church doctrinally and lifestyle— was here, but we didn't send these people. Hmm. They went out without our authorization and they deeply troubled you. So that's, you see the devastating effect of false teaching there.
0: Why does the letter say
1: good things about Paul and Barnabas? Well, it's very important that you know that these are men that we trust. They are going out with our authorization. They have the authority to tell mm. you what we think. And so the letter will just begin – it will give you the kind of binary yes-no decision. No, you do not need to be circumcised. We are strongly recommending that you abstain from these four things. Paul and Barnabas uh, will, will explain more, um, or in this case their messengers were um, Judas and Silas. Uh, who it says later were themselves prophets, said much to encourage the church. So there's some additional questions. Um, we all get that. You know, People read Galatians and say, I have questions. You know, Can you help me? So that's what teachers do. Yeah. So they were sent out with the authority to address the practical and theological issues that would come.
0: So essentially there's a compare and contrast here. There's these teachers that we didn't send out, and they've taught you false things. Right. And these are men that we – commend to you, and they're going to teach you the truth.
1: Yeah, we trust them, listen to them. And I think that's, uh, in general, what how church leadership works now. In local churches, you get men that go through a process, and they've been filtered, they've been interrogated, their, their lives have been looked at, their doctrines been looked at, and they're put in a position. And then they teach. And the church needs to follow them as long as what they're teaching is plausibly biblical. As long as it, it you know, you might be wrong. If, if you disagree with them, you might be right, but you might be wrong. And you don't have the position of elder in the church. Hmm. And so the elders are given, uh, collectively, plural elders are given the responsibility, as in this Jerusalem council, to make decisions for the church. And the church needs to follow. If you have problems, raise the questions. You may be right. We'll listen to you. But if not, we're going to do uh, this. This is the leadership we have.
0: Now, you mentioned this phrase earlier. Let's unpack it a little bit. What is the phrase, it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit
1: and to us, teach us? Well, they were relying on the leadership of the Holy Spirit. Everything that has been done, everything to establish the church of Jesus Christ for 20 centuries Mm. has been directly the work of the Holy Spirit. That's what the Spirit was sent into the world to do. Now, the job of human leaders is to discern the leadership of the Spirit and to follow him to, as Paul says in Galatians, to keep in step with the Spirit. What is the Spirit? How is the Spirit leading? And this language is appropriate because sometimes we're not 100% sure that we're hearing the Spirit properly. It seems like the Holy Spirit is leading this way. And so we're We're not trying to speak for the Holy Spirit, but it seemed good to the Holy Spirit. There's nothing that seems good to the Holy Spirit. That's not the way he looks at the world. He knows what the truth is. (laughs) But there's a lot of seeming for us as we try to follow his leadership. And so there's a humility here to say, look, we feel the spirit leading us in this direction.
0: In the letter, they call the restrictions that they do give, in verse 29, requirements or essentials. Mm -hmm. What would happen if some Gentiles decided not to obey these requirements?
1: Well, I think that would be showing a rebellious spirit. I think you could say, "Look, I I have, I have um, freedom in this matter." But Paul addresses it very, very clearly uh, in Romans fourteen. You know, you would destroy your brother so you can exercise your own freedoms. Mm. Do not destroy your brother for whom Christ died. He's not ready for that kind of freedom yet. He's going to have to establish some new habits and patterns in his life. Religiously, he needs to learn to walk by a certain place in town there in Corinth and not go to those orgies. He needs to not hear the siren call of those beautiful women that he slept with more times than he can count. He needs to stay away from that. You need to let this guy get built up and strengthened Hmm. and at some point he'll be able years from now to walk by and he'll try to win them to christ and he'll be safe and strong at that point but you're destroying your brother for whom christ died so there's pretty strong words that are coming later in the epistles that would be written so yeah requirements is the word and if you think you know better you don't so uh, this is a wise policy now again we know that all foods have been declared uh, clean And that's an important principle, but there are other principles at stake here as well. And part of that is the process by which weak people get stronger and stronger in the Christian faith.
0: Now, Andy, you mentioned that really one of these is different than the other three. So we talked about three of these that we're free from and one that we're not. Let's talk a little bit more about sexual immorality. Why is this so important for them to address in this letter that they send to the Gentiles?
1: First of all, it is different. I mean, I can eat a blood sausage with a uh, free conscience spiritually. Um, I can eat meat sacrificed to idols because I don't even know. I mean I've been in some openly idolatrous countries like I was in Kathmandu and I could hear idol makers doing their tap, 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 working on – for all I know, the meat I was eating that day had been sacrificed but I never asked. It was just nothing that bothered me. Mm. These three things have clearly been fulfilled. They don't trouble me in my life. However, sexual immorality – Pornography, um, the allure of adultery or fornication—we um, are not free in these areas. That these, this is a timeless prohibition: one man, one woman in a covenant relationship uh, for life. That's that's it for sex. I remember Elizabeth Elliot uh, was asked to write a, a book called "Sex in the Single Christian," and she said that's going to be the easiest book I ever write, wrote, and also the shortest. <laughs> Answer no. <laughs> so it's just some humor. It's like, well, all right, yeah, but what what advice? How can we help him be pure? Well, that's a different matter. But I think I would choose a different book title, you know, at that point. But no, no, this is this is a vulnerable area, and mm. we are permanently bound in laws of holiness. And Paul will make that very, very clear in First Corinthians six. You know, sexually immoral people do not inherit the kingdom of God, but people who eat blood sausages can eat or can inherit the kingdom of God. So we need to make some distinctions here.
0: Now, the messengers deliver the letter. How was it received by the church?
1: Oh, they received it very well. They go down first to Antioch, which is the most significant church other than the church in Jerusalem. And um, that's where the debate first had started in fifteen one. So they're going back and saying, you folks are wrong and Mm -hmm. you need to stop. This is the ruling that we have now, and um, the rest of the church, many Gentile converts there, uh, they heard it and it says they were glad for their encouraging message, for its encouraging message. They were grateful, wow, that was it. I think the the whole thing, it says, First John says, you have an anointing from the Holy One and all of you knows the truth. I think what that means, and then he goes on and says, I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it. It's like, well, then why do you write the epistle if we already knew it? Uh, he's not saying you don't need the epistle. What he's saying is when the epistle comes, you will immediately identify it as true. Hmm if you have that anointing from the Holy Spirit. So the same spirit that led the Jerusalem council, led them to write the letter, now is at work in the people as they read its encouraging message and they stick the flag in it saying, true, I can see the spirit's work here. And so they were glad about it.
0: It's interesting, we've talked a little bit about Judas and Silas, these men who went with uh, Paul and Barnabas as messengers. Uh, It says in verse 32 that they were prophets, and so they had a role there as well to confirm this message, but then also to encourage and strengthen the brothers with many words. Mm -hmm. What was the result of the Jerusalem Council? What does this outcome teach us about resolving doctrinal controversy?
1: Yeah, I think the result is a very sweet Christian unity. And so the, the flaming arrow, a very significant flaming arrow of an attack on the gospel. And you can tell how significant it is by how angry it seems and energetic Paul is in Galatians about mm-hmm. it. There's a righteous anger in him concerning this false teaching. Um, and he's after it. But the result of this decision by the, the, the leaders of the early church was a sweet unity and encouragement and the continued spread of the gospel. The gospel continued to flourish as a result of getting it right.
0: Andy, what final thoughts do you have for us as we wrap up this section of Acts chapter 15?
1: Well, this is a great, great chapter. Acts 15, one of the great chapters in the Bible. Uh, we are still reaping the benefits of it, the fact that we are set free from legalism, set free from self-effort. Justification is by faith in Christ alone. Our sins are forgiven, past, present, and future by simple faith in Christ. But there is there are works of holiness that come, sanctification flows. Uh, we don't just live... Um, lawless lives. It does matter how we live, but it doesn't touch whether our sins are forgiven or not. Our sins will always be forgiven, covered through faith in the blood of Christ. I'm grateful that the Jerusalem Council got it right. Well,
0: this has been episode 30 in our Acts Bible Study podcast. We invite you to join us next time for episode 31 entitled, Paul and Barnabas Split, Paul Begins Second Missionary Journey, where we'll discuss Acts chapter 15, verse 36 through chapter 16, verse 5. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys podcast, and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all.
1: Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification,